Hi everyone, Drew Road here from the Broken Brain Podcast. Welcome. Today we have my dear friend Amber Ray on the podcast talking about how we can take our thoughts of chronic worrying and anxiety and turn them into thoughts of wonder through a special reframing process. This idea, this method, this lifestyle, this approach is something that Amber calls choosing wonder over worry. It's a deep processing and questioning of our thoughts and the meaning that we attach to them. It's also the title of her recently published book, Choose Wonder Over Worry, Move Beyond Fear and Doubt to Unlock Your Full Potential. You know, we've had so many practitioners, scientists, and researchers on the podcast talking about how problematic stress is and the toll that it takes on our life and our health, chronic stress. But stress isn't all that bad. And we know in life, if we wanna grow, we need a healthy dose of stress to push us, to push our brains, and to push our bodies to perform at their best and go beyond our comfort zone. But the problem becomes when we don't have the tools to let go and release unnecessary stress. And a huge part of stress, unnecessary stress, is believing every single thought that you think without questioning it and letting worry control your life. Now, this isn't about positive thinking because that doesn't always work. This is about making your feelings and emotions your friend by not resisting them, but also not indulging in them. That's why we have Amber on the podcast today with us to help give us some of those tools and talk about her approach and story. Now, a little bit about Amber. She is an author, artist, and speaker whose work invites you to live your truth, befriend your emotions, and express your gifts. Her writing blends raw personal storytelling with actionable aha moments and has reached more than 5 million people in 195 countries. Her public art has spread to more than 20 countries, and she's spoken and collaborated with brands like Kate Spade, Apple, Amazon, and Unilever. Mind Body Green calls her the Brene Brown of Wonder, and she's been featured in the New York Times, Time Magazine, Fast Company, the BBC, ABC World News, and much more. I start off today's interview by asking Amber to talk about the quote that kicks off her book, which is, don't die with your gifts still inside of you, and to tell us what it means to her. So... When I was three years old, one of my earliest memories is a phone call when I was at my grandmother's house and my father called and I remember my grandmother handing me the phone and saying, it's your dad, but please don't tell your mom. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm three. I don't really probably know how to process that, but I take the phone and I remember my dad saying to me, you know, Hey baby, I know I haven't seen you in a while, but know that no matter what, I'll always love you. And you know, we exchanged some conversation, whatever a three-year-old could converse, you know. And when I hung up the phone, my grandmother repeated again, please don't tell your mom about this. So, of course, the first thing I do when my mom picks me up is tell my mom about it. As all kids would do. <laughs> As all kids would do. And, you know, I didn't find out until later, but my dad was a big dreamer, a businessman, an artist, a singer-songwriter. He was following his dream and his band called Dreamer to Nashville to pursue music. And as much as he had these ambitions and all these gifts inside of him, he also was really in his own way. You know, he left us. He didn't really, you know, acknowledge mm. that. He had some addictive behaviors, definitely the sex, drugs, rock and roll era of music and ended up getting behind the wheel under the influence, which took his and his best friend's life. Oh my gosh. 
And, but he, his best friend died immediately and he didn't actually pass until I was 12 years old, but he never from three years old to 12 years old, he was in a care center and never regained full consciousness. And so I went and I saw him and, you know, he couldn't really communicate with me, but when he did pass, when I was 12 years old, as soon as I heard the news, there was a voice that said inside of me, or maybe it was my like Oprah, something I'd heard Oprah say, which was, please don't die with your gift still inside. Mm. And I felt like it was my life's marching orders in a way where I didn't want to follow in my father's footsteps. And I wanted to make sure that I live this one life fully. And actually, when I was writing the book and completing the book, I realized that his death was actually a gift of mine and I was his gift in a way. And which was like this amazing full circle moment. But, you know, just the reminder that in each of us, there is so much that we're here to give. And I know the Australian nurse Bronnie War once said that the top regret of those on their deathbed is I wish I would have lived the life true to me and not the life that others expected. And so I'm so curious and it's really been my life's call to understand what gets in the way of us expressing all that we have to give. You know, in this Broken Brain docuseries that we did, all about brain health and the root causes of what uh, leads to um, mental disorders later on, um, nutritional challenges that impact brain health, gut health. Uh, One topic that we touched on, but we didn't have a chance to go deep into is how not honoring our purpose Mm. and not listening to what we're meant to do can add to our daily stress. When you see people struggling with um, really feeling that feeling and wanting to express and work on these gifts that they have inside, what are the things that block them on a regular basis from accessing those gifts, gifts and then doing something with it in the world? Yeah, I'd say the big ones are I'm not good enough, which is I found I was researching and having conversations with everyone from the CEO of a billion dollar company who had access to so much resources and money and yet didn't think he had the time and money to do the things that he wanted to do. And, you know, people on the opposite spectrum. And I found that there was this myth of not enough. I'm not good enough, smart enough, talented enough, influential enough. The other one, I don't have enough time or money to do the thing that I want to do. So there's this myth of scarcity and not enoughness that is one of the big ones. And, you know, a sibling of that, as I just mentioned, is this not enough time in the daily schedule. Oh, I have so much responsibility, family, I have to pay the bills, all real things. But those become excuses for carving out time to pursue the things that actually matter. Mm. And then I'd say the last big one is I don't know what I want. And I remember there was something that I saw you write so long ago where people think they're confused, they're unclear, which oftentimes is they're just afraid. Yeah, so well said. You know, you mentioned uh, the Australian nurse, Bronnie Ware, and uh, and that quote, like, I wish I would have lived the life that I, the the number one regret of people who are dying in these uh, hospice care and and nursing homes. And, you know, the follow-up to that was, really beautiful. Like I let other people's priorities Mm. become my Mm -hmm. own priorities, Mm -hmm. Um, which is a beautiful thing to talk about because I think in this day and age, we have more people fighting for our attention and trying to tell us what our priorities should be than ever in the history of humanity. Totally. And we're all struggling with how do you create some space and not let worry take over? Um, Let's talk a little bit more about worry. You know, your book has worry in the title. Why did you want to write a book about worry? Yeah, that's a great question. I, well, 
there's a few, few answers to this, but one, when I looked back on my life and all the times that I didn't go after the things that I wanted to do, it was because of some anxiety, some fear, some story that I was telling myself. And I remember one day when I walked into this art gallery and I immediately had this feeling inside of me and a voice inside of my head, which I like to think of as wonder said, it's time to make some art. And that was quickly followed up by art. Who are you to make art? You didn't go to art school. And I asked myself in that moment, who are you talking? And that voice said, I'm worry. And so worry became this way for me to identify when my inner critic was speaking. It became the way for me to identify when I was really buying into a story that was or was not true, but that I was buying into and could question. And when I met with Dr. James Doty, he's a neurosurgeon at Stanford, he said that we spend, the average human spends 80% of their time and attention with regret about the past or anxiety about the future, which is essentially we're worrying about something that has already happened that we can't change or something that has yet to happen that we're fearful about. Mm -hmm. And so I found both this inner inner anxiety and worry conversation happening inside of me, as well as this larger societal trend and challenge and just wondered, of course, what I could do about it. Do you think people underestimate the impact and the daily stress that comes from worrying? I feel like people aren't always aware of how much it's leading and running it's, you know, tapping into that unconscious part of themselves where they, you know, one of the first questions I ask in the book is what is your relationship to worry like? And I was talking to my friend Caduce recently and he's like, I didn't even think I worried. And then all of a sudden I'm writing about my relationship to worry and realizing, whoa, worry is actually driving a lot of my decision-making. I didn't even realize it. And I actually, you know, I've been wanting to write poetry poems and do poetry for a really long time. And yet I've been pushing away my inner artist and I didn't realize that was out of worry. And so I think it is gripping our lives in more ways than we realize, whether it's, you know, worry and, and some worry is useful. We're not all worry is bad, which we can get into in a minute, but you know, whether it's worrying about something we can't control, worrying about whether or not we're ready or if we deserve the thing that we want, you know, there's all flavors of worry, but it really can stifle and paralyze our potential. When you look at people who are played with worry or they come and they write to you or they come to your talks, what are some of the symptoms that you see that show up in their life when the worry is really dominating and kind of controlling the direction that you're headed in. How does that, how have you seen in others and in yourself that manifest in your life when you're led by worry and not wonder? There's a lot of numbing and avoidance techniques. So whether that's drinking that third glass of wine, eating unhealthily, I feel like those are a lot of the symptoms where the, they, a lot of people the biggest question people ask me is how do I make my worry go away or how do I get rid of my worry? And the aim isn't to get rid of the worry. It's to learn how to have a relationship with it. So, so many people feel anxious because they feel these feelings, but they don't really know what the feelings are and they don't know how to name or label them. And so they try to push them away, avoid them or numb them. I'd say that's one of the big categories. Um, another big category would be just there's a lot of like, I should, or I need to figure, I, I need to figure it out is a big one that I hear people like figure it out, figure it out where they're so stuck in analyzing, 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 and thinking, thinking, thinking that they lose sight of the present moment and they lose sight of what actually matters and is important. And then I'd say the last one is really around a lot of the should and obligation language, which you started to speak to a little bit earlier, which is I want this, but I should be doing this. And so other people's expectations are really 
driving their lives. I remember I sat down with this incredible journalist who was prolific. She's like, well, I have a family and all these things. And so I got another job, but I want to do this and I want to do this, but I really should be doing this. And it was so clear to me that worry was driving her because the thing she wanted was not what she was putting her energy and attention on because she was scared that it couldn't offer the, you know, financial container for her family to thrive. I think scared is such a good word Mm. because I see that a lot of people, whether they're thinking of a career shift or they want to give permission to themselves to invest in their health and put themselves first or try something, there's this fear that shows up. And then that leaves them in a place of, you know, we have, we have these human evolutionary techniques that we've learned that all animals have fight, flight, but then also freeze. Mm -hmm. And freeze is a technique that animals do, which is the equivalent of like playing dead. Mm. And emotionally, sometimes I think people play dead because they're just not sure what to do. They're they're scared. So if Mm. somebody's in that place, they're resonating with what we're talking about and they're just getting started. Like literally, like what is step one of this journey? How do they begin down this path? So step one is to, I like to call it name it to tame it, which I stole from Dr. Dan Siegel. And the notion is that first we must acknowledge and name where we're at and what we're feeling and what we're experiencing. So this is the process of getting really, really honest with yourself. I remember I went to this workshop with Cheryl Strayed. She's the author of the book, uh, Wild. And her very first question that she asked when she got on stage was, do you tell yourself the truth? And everyone was like, ooh, sometimes not really sort of, yeah. And so it's really this process of becoming honest with ourselves. And that really starts with naming where you're at, naming what you're feeling, naming what you're experiencing in the moment, just so you can become real and honest with yourself. And then from there, it's identifying, okay, now that I know where I'm at, where truly is the direction that I want to go? What does, you know, as vividly and clearly as possible, the dream or the gift or the call look like for you. And you may be really unclear. It might be like, I want to be around people who motivate and inspire me. I want to feel good every day. I want to do things that inspire me. Or it might be like, I want to write a book by 2020, you know? (laughs) So it's be gentle with yourself about the level of clarity that you have. But first just, you know, get as, as real as you can about where you're at and where you want to go. And then it's just, you know, identifying the steps to get there and really naming the fears that you have. So I love this fear mapping exercise where I, before any important project, I literally write down every fear that I have. I'm afraid it, I'll fail. It won't work out. Um, you know, people will judge me and not like it, whatever those fears are. And then I go through every single fear and I circle the ones I can control. And if I can control it, then I can take productive steps around it. So if I'm afraid that, you know, I'm trying to think of one when I, you know, when I was writing my book, I was afraid that I didn't have enough time to write it. And so that was very simple. That was like daily practice and habit. So I knew I had three months to write 55,000 words, which is actually only 611 words a day. And when you break it down like that, my like overwhelming fear of not enough time became a very clear daily step. And so, you know, get circle the ones you can control and understand the steps. And for the ones that you can't control, which is of course the big question, how do we navigate all the fear and the anxiety and the worry that emerges that really we can't do anything about. And one of my favorite tools is to actually talk and have a conversation with it. So if I have a fear that, you know, people are going to hate it, let's see, I can't control if someone's going to hate the thing that I create. And so I might say to that fear voice, 
hey, I see you really afraid that people are going to judge me. What's going on there? Can we talk about this? And it's learning to see these, these uncomfortable emotions as allies and as informants on our path. Because oftentimes they have wisdom for us if we learn to turn toward them rather than push them away. So, you know, hey, fear of being judged, what's going on there? And fear of being judged will just be like, you know, this is really nervous. I feel vulnerable. It's the first time we've done this. And, you know, thanks for talking to me. And so it's, it's just really acknowledging and seeing our fears. And once we do that, then it's all about, okay, how do we have a relationship moving forward? Thank you for showing up. I see you. I appreciate you for trying to protect me, which is so key because fear is part of the threat mechanism system in our brain, which is anytime we're about to do something dangerous, fear shows up to say, hey, watch out, be careful. But anytime we're trying to do something meaningful or novel or new or interesting, fear also shows up to show us, hey, you're heading in the direction of growth. So I like to remember that anytime I'm afraid, it means that I'm growing and it means that I care because I'm moving towards something meaningful and worthwhile. Uh, it reminds me of the, the work of uh, one of your mentors, Seth Godin, who talks about the lizard brain. Can you explain to people listening here, like, what is the lizard brain and that concept, um, which plays right into what you were just sharing? Totally. So the lizard brain is, and I, I might botch the way that Seth talks about it, but it, it's that part of our brain that reacts anytime we're moving in the direction of something meaningful. Stephen Pressfield, which is where he really, I think, borrowed the concept from, which he talks about resistance in his book, The War of Art, which is he, his whole thing is move in the direction of resistance because the reason you're not writing your book, starting your company, doing the thing that you want to do, building your wellness program, being in the best shape of your life, whatever it is for you is because of resistance. That voice. That voice that voice inside your head that says, you can't do this. You're not good enough. What if you fail? People are going to laugh at you. That protector inside of us who just doesn't want us to be humiliated or kicked out of the tribe. And it literally comes from like, I think it's a amygdala, the Mm -hmm. part of the brain that has, even though so much of our lives and our circumstances have evolved, it's literally this millions of year old thing that was designed to protect us from tigers (laughs) and lions. But in this day and age, our boss criticizing our work or our mm-hmm. parents not approving us or not having the support of your partner has become the equivalent and we can't make the distinction. It seems like one thing that you've done in, in the work that you do is you've, you've really separated that this, this voice is a part of you, but it's not you. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that? How did that insight come f- for you to even know Because most people think, I think, therefore I am, I'm all my thoughts. Yeah. I had a breakdown moment in my early mid twenties where I was buying into a lot of stories that weren't serving me, that men I love will leave me, that I'm not worthy and I do not deserve the things that I desire. And, you know, I had all these different stories that I actually did not even realize were driving my behavior. And when I became aware after a really bad breakup, after a panic attack, after, you know, I was on such a hustle for approval, seeking validation outside of me that it got to the point that I was popping Adderall to perform higher and get more done. And so this all culminated to this panic attack moment where I realized, whoa, like how did, how did I get here? And what was interesting is that since my father was an addict, I realized in that moment, wow, I've been following in his footsteps and this has to change immediately. Mm. And so that's when I began to really identify the stories and begin to question them. And so it was, okay, men I love will leave me. Where did that come from? Where did I learn that? 
who told me that? What experience provided me with my interpretation of something that happened? And of course, losing my father, there was this feeling of abandonment with that example. And so that's where the men I love will leave me story created. But we're constantly creating stories. Humans are meaning making machines. So we're constantly creating meaning from our life experiences. It could be, I remember I gave a mentor some of my early writing and he gave me the feedback that like, no one cares about your story. And I immediately made that mean that I didn't matter and my story didn't matter. That's not what he was saying. He probably had a point, but I became so defensive right away. And I took that, that piece of feedback to mean that something was wrong with me. That was because I was buying into my thoughts and believing them. And so a lot of our thoughts reflect a wound from childhood, you know, and that could be like a deep wound, like the loss of a parent or some girl in fifth grade saying something, you know, and again, there's always in our lives, what actually happens and what we make that mean. And the intersection of those two things is the story of our lives. And so noticing that the thoughts we think may not be true is what completely freed and liberated me. And I remember coming across Byron Katie's work around this time when I was going through this internal questioning process. And she has these four questions in her process, the work, which is, is it true? And so like, you know, is it true that I'm not worthy of what I desire? Well, no. Um, or maybe at that time I was like, well, yeah, it is. Cause I'm really believing that. And I want to really hold on to and buy into that. Mm. And the second question is, can you be sure it's true? And that's when I was like, well, maybe not. And then the third question is what happens when I believe this thought? Well, what happens is I limit myself. I don't take action. I hold back. I play small. And then the fourth question is who would I be without this thought? And I remember thinking, whoo, well, I would be really free. I would speak up, take risks. I would go after what really mattered. And so those four questions really helped me to identify where the stories came from, where the thoughts came from, how to investigate them and liberate and free myself. And do you feel like that's a crucial part of the work of getting away from worry and stepping into wonder, like understanding a little bit of where the origin story comes from of these insecurities? Absolutely. Because if we don't get to the root, what happens is that we keep reliving, reliving, reliving. And again, often, like I also at one point was a positivityaholic. So anytime I had a negative thought, I tried to replace it with a positive one, thinking that if I just focused on positivity, everything would be great. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's, that's actually, that's detrimental because oftentimes those, those negative thoughts are showing up trying to get our attention. And when we can turn toward them, when we can wonder about the origin of them, that's when we can really move through. And so I think of worry as the voice of our inner critic and wonder is the voice of our curious inner guide. And wonder is the part of us that questions the stories that worry creates to see if they're actually true. It's like our internal investigator being like, hmm, you're not good enough. Where did that come from? Why are you buying into that? Do you want to buy into that? What new story would have you thrive? And so it's this dance between understanding what worry is telling us and then using wonder to really set ourselves free. Is there any place for useful worry? You know, you talked about it a little bit earlier, but what's the difference between toxic worry and useful worry? Well, as you mentioned earlier, worry and fear were here so that we wouldn't get chased by a tiger. Yeah. You know, so many years ago. And so worry and fear are here to protect us and keep us safe. And so useful worry is the kind of worry that if we're standing too edge, standing too close to the edge of a mountain, worry would be like, hey, back up, dangerous, you could fall off and hurt yourself. 
Or a worry is useful when we have a really important deadline coming up in a week and we haven't prepared at all. Worry, you know, we might start to feel anxiety because that anxiety is saying, hey, pay attention, this is important, let's get this done. And so worry is useful when A, it's within our control and B, we can take productive action on moving forward around it. And, you know, worry is often you think of a mother who has, a, you know, a kid and that kid's just learning to get their feet. There's going to be a greater sense of worry because there's a sense of protectiveness and it's knowing what is useful in terms of being able to shepherd and be a guide for our true selves to emerge and what is toxic. And toxic are those ruminating beliefs, thoughts, stories that we buy into that stifle our potential and hold us back. Because it's a useful worry that supports us, but it's almost like we as a society are addicted to the toxic worry. Oh yeah. Why, why are we addicted to toxic worry? Well, I think our, we're conditioned into it. I mean, even cap, so much of capitalism is, or I'd say the, I remember I worked in the advertising in, industry out of college and there was this moment when the CEO of the company took us in and he was like, we have a new product to help men shine their shoes on the go. And so let's make men feel insecure about not having shiny shoes so that they buy this product. And so, so much of advertising and capitalism in that sense is rooted out of making people feel bad about themselves so that they buy something. You know, you look at billboards. I remember being a 12-year-old girl looking at a Photoshopped model on a billboard thinking that she was perfect and something was wrong with me, not knowing that she was Photoshopped and actually not real. <sighs> and so, so much of the imagery of our society and the information that we consume is designed to manipulate us. There's often these key words that are what I would call maybe red flags. Maybe you have a different name for them that show up and are like an indication that worry is taking over. I think one of them is should. Mm -hmm. Can you talk more about that and what other words or things that are there that you look for that are sometimes a trigger that we're heading in a different direction? Because it's almost like worry can take over without us even knowing. Mm -hmm. And so Sometimes when I see in my speech pattern, the word should pop up a lot. That's like, oh, wow, maybe something like worry is driving me right now. Yeah. So I think there's both the thoughts and then the physical and body sensations. And being able to tune into both is really important. So first, the thoughts like I should be doing this. I should have this done. I should, I don't know, do something. And should is buying into the obligations of others. Versus I want to, or I desire to, or this is really important to me because this is a core value of mine and I want to prioritize that. That's a much different conversation. So I think, yeah, exactly. Anytime you're noticing yourself, I should do this. That is a definitely a sign that worry is leading. And then on the body sensation front, I know that worry is starting to take over if my heart is beating really fast. If it's actually so many thoughts that I can't pinpoint the specific thought, it's just suddenly like there's so much internal noise that I don't know where it's coming from. Maybe I'm getting sweaty palms and I just notice like, whoa, I'm reacting to something and I don't even know what it is. And so whenever this happens, I like to bring forth the three C's, which I think of as wonder sidekicks, and that's courage, curiosity, and compassion. And so courage is the part of us that's like, ooh, this is scary. I don't want to go there. This is a little uncomfortable, but I'm going to go there anyway. So let's say like I'm shooting myself because I think I should do something that I really don't want to do because someone told me it's important. Courage would be like, hey, let's go to that person, have an honest conversation with them and say, hey, you know what? I committed to this from an inauthentic place. 
this is not actually true for me. And I'm really sorry that I made this commitment. I'm sorry if I'm going to disappoint you, but I really am practicing honoring myself right now. And I prefer not to move forward with this. And, you know, that's when courage is so key. And then the second is curiosity, which is curiosity is a part of ourselves that says, hmm, something feels off center, or I feel a little triggered, or, you know, my heart's beating really fast, or I'm buying into this story. Hmm, where did that come from? What was the trigger point? What happened that made me feel this way? And that's really getting curious in and bringing ourselves back to the moment so we can see the root of how we got to the state that we were in. And so in terms of an example, you know, last night I got really triggered because we couldn't get into this garage code wasn't working. We were checking in late to an Airbnb. I had a big interview in the morning. The next thing I know, I'm lashing out at my fiance about you know, how he should know the code. There's the should word again. And I remember thinking, whoa, 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 pause, curiosity, what happened? And walking back, you know, backing out of that situation and also being able to say, babe, I'm so sorry. I'm taking this out on you and that's not cool. Hmm. And then the third one is in compassion. And compassion is so key because we're human. We make mistakes. We say the wrong thing. We act out on our partners sometimes when we're feeling upset. And having compassion for ourselves and those around us to know that everyone's doing the best that they can is so key so that we can, you know, celebrate our humanness and also acknowledge our shortcomings and be okay with those shortcomings. I love it. So in functional medicine, we look at the root cause of an illness in many places in the body. It could be food, it could be toxicity, or even like the thoughts in our mind. When you made the shift in your worrying habits, did you notice other shifts in your health and your relationships? What were all the ramifications of when you dropped worry or at least caught it sooner, which is a big part of your work? Mm -hmm. You're never going to get rid of it completely. How did you notice implications in other areas of your life? Literally everything changed. My body dropped like 30 pounds that I was holding on to. Um, I immediately had a taste for different kinds of food. I felt like I really wanted chocolate and sugar and wine and, you know, carbs. And suddenly I had zero appetite for that. It was so interesting. I also noticed that, yeah, so many of my relationships transformed. I realized I was attracting certain toxic relationships mm. and it was time to reevaluate those and align myself with people that I really felt a sense of true connection with. And then, of course, with my career and my ambitions, I just committed and went all in. There was like this all inness around everything that actually mattered in my life, whether it was what I was putting into my body, the information I was consuming, the people I was surrounding myself with. I began having a much higher filter and level of discernment for how I spent my energy and time. And literally everything changed, like to the point where I, I had this moment today when we checked into our hotel, I'm on tour for my book. And I was like, I'm doing the thing that I always dreamed of doing. Like it, it all lined up, it's all happening. And it almost a pinch me moment because it's, you know, I, my role is to embody the message. And I'm like, choosing me wonder where it works. <laughs> <laughs> so somebody who's there and is trying to notice these patterns and how they show up and switch, catch themselves. Mm -hmm. What are the daily practices that you use just like somebody goes to the gym or makes that shake in the morning. What are the daily practices that you use and recommend to others that we can do to 
build that wonder muscle and catch the worry in our lives faster. So years ago, I read the book, The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. And this book was so transformative for me. And in it, she has two practices, which I've taken on and have done consistently for about almost nine years now, I think. And one is morning pages. And this is journaling as soon as you wake up in the morning, stream of consciousness and three pages. So usually about 20 minutes of journaling. And this is getting everything that's inside of you out of the way. Right now I'm feeling, this is annoying me. I'm stressed about this. I feel anxious about this. I'm really excited about this. And I feel curious about this. It's really allowing yourself to go wherever you want to go, just so you can get it out of your head and down on paper. And then the other practice that she has is artist states. And, you know, I like to think that we all have an artist inside of us and the artist is the part of us that comes up with ideas and innovates and is creative. And it's every week going on a date with yourself to really feed your inner child. And that was so important for me in terms of tapping back into the wonder, particularly after years of repressing and pushing away the wonder and really letting worry lead my life. Suddenly I was, you know, going and sometimes like playing in a playground and swinging on swings for 20 minutes was a date with myself or going to a museum, an art museum that I hadn't been to in forever. And it was looking back at a lot of the curiosities I had as a kid and creating space for that was so key. And then the third really key one is whenever I'm experiencing an emotion real time is to dialogue with it. And so this, you know, let's say that I'm writing an article and my perfectionist is coming up. I'll pause and I'll say, Hey, perfectionist, I see you. Um, let's talk about this. Why are you here? And I found such useful insight in these emotions when I was able to talk to them, not attached to what they said, but to just give them a space to have a voice. And I found that so key because sometimes perfectionism was like, well, I just, you know, really don't think we're there yet with this essay. And I have a few suggestions if you're open to hearing it. And I would have thought perfectionism was terrible, but actually it just like has a really strict editor that wants things to be really great. And so having a dialogue with our emotions, I found it found to be really, really key. So Amber, I want to talk about something really important that I think will be useful to our listeners that I know you have some thoughts on. It's how is our brain wired to worry and how can we learn to choose wonder instead of hyper-focusing on that worry? Great question. And, you know, our brain is biologically wired to worry, as you said, because the same circuits that are in our frontal lobes that allow for planning and problem solving and decision making is also the part of our brain that produces worry. And so while our brain's top priority is keeping us safe and alive and out of danger, and we've successfully done that through evolution, you know, we successfully outran the the tigers and are here today. But the problem is, is that we don't have tigers hanging out in the bushes anymore. And so sometimes if we're pursuing a meaningful project or we have an upcoming deadline coming up, that can trigger that same sort of toxic worry. And there's a, there's a difference between worry because I'm not saying let's not worry because, you know, how useful is it when you're in a lot of worry or you're having spinning thoughts and someone says, oh, just don't think about that. It's always like, well, thanks, that's not helpful, but it's how do we worry better? And so it's really important to understand the difference between worry that's useful and worry that's toxic. I love, and, I love that statement. How do we worry better? That's such a, that's such a quote right there. 
And so useful worry is the kind of worry, again, worry wants to keep us alive, safe, and out of danger. So if we're standing at the edge of a mountain, worry is going to be like, hey, back up, don't get hurt. Or if we have an upcoming deadline next week and we haven't prepared at all, we may feel a sense of fear in our body or spinning thoughts because worry is saying, hey, pay attention, this is important. It's time to work on that important deadline. And so that's when worry is useful because it inspires us and motivates us to take action and move in the direction of what's meaningful. But worry is toxic when it's those ruminating, spinning thoughts that go on and on and on inside of our minds and actually paralyze and prevent us from moving forward. And it's that kind of worry that I learned from Dr. James Doty, he's a neurosurgeon at Stanford, that we can spend 80% of our time on, which is that anxious thinking about the past and anxious thinking about the future, most of which we usually can't control. Ah, it's so well said. And, you know, a big part of, you know, worrying is that when we start to worry, we um, can develop different emotions inside of our our body sometimes we have a sensation of worry you know maybe we saw like an instagram post about something or we read an article about something or or we came across something or had an interaction with our our boss and that brings up a sensation of worry which might trigger an emotion some sort of fear rejection you know Mm -hmm. or other things and, and I think people are always looking for how can they understand those, you know, emotions in context. And you have a whole methodology around reframing emotions and, and mental swaps for the common traps we find ourselves in, like some of the emotions that I mentioned, others too. So help us understand what's that process look like to reframe our emotions and what are some useful mental swaps uh, that we can bring in? So first off, if all of a sudden, let's say your, your boss says something and you immediately feel rejected, or maybe you don't even know that you feel rejected yet, but you have a swell of emotions and feelings rushing through your body. The first thing to do is to take a few breaths and to slow down because we want to turn down the stress response and really come back to the present moment. So take a few deep breaths and begin to notice your thoughts. Notice what are, what is, what is actually going through your mind? Is it, wow, he said that he's such a jerk. He doesn't get me. Or I can't believe he thought of me that way. And wow, he just, you know, I feel so rejected by this, whatever those thoughts are, pay attention and notice those thoughts. And then also notice the sensations that are happening in your body. Is your heart beating fast? Are your hands feeling, you know, sweaty and palmy? Do you have this, the desire to actually run out the room or to get into a fight? Just begin to notice. And again, that act of noticing is what brings you back to the present moment. And then once you breathe, you're noticing, you're starting to feel a little bit more present, that's when we can name it to tame it. And name it to tame it is getting clear on what that emotion is and being able to actually label that emotion. And neuroscience shows that when we can label what we're feeling, oh, oh, right now I'm feeling rejected because he said something and I made it mean this. Or right now I'm feeling really angry and off center because I'm not feeling respected. Or I, you know, I'm feeling a little insecure and not sure about myself because the imposter inside of me is being flared and I don't know if I deserve to be here. Being able to really label and name what we're feeling allows us to reduce our anxiety around that sensation by up to 50%. And this is uh, shown through neuroscience. So 
once we've done that, okay, so we've we've calmed down, we've become present, we've been able to name and label our emotion, then this is where the reframe opportunity is. This is where it's like, okay, you know, was he really rejecting me? And um, oftentimes there's what actually happens and there's what we make what happened mean. And one of my favorite poets who I know you know in Q said, we will always find the evidence for what we choose to believe. And so maybe our boss is actually just triggering our own sense of rejection with ourselves and the rejection is inside of us, but you know, we're experiencing it through him. And a reframe with rejection that I love is that rejection can often be redirection. So we can, rather than being like, it's his fault, I'm so angry, he rejected me, we can redirect that and think, wait, where am I feeling rejected? Why am I feeling rejected? What is this rejection trying to reveal to me? And where can I actually redirect my energy so that I can actually be productive and move in the direction of what actually is meaningful and important? It's so important uh, to think of it that way because there's so many times that we inject meaning into things before really yeah. knowing the truth about them. And and I love how you said the first step was to slow down because we all know that when we're uh, in the thick of these emotions, it's hard to take a step back and ask ourselves a different type of question. Yep. And so uh, can you just repeat that those sort of steps one more time as like kind of a recap? So um, we're going to slow down. Right. So slow down by taking a few deep breaths that turns down the body stress response. Then two, notice your thoughts and be able to just notice, yeah, what are the thoughts spinning through your mind? What are the sensations that you're feeling in your body? Three, name it to tame it as vividly as possible. Be able to pinpoint the specific emotion that you're feeling. And then the last step is to actually have the reframe. And the reframe is a part that I think that uh... – is really interesting. You know, on your Instagram uh, page, you have these excellent visual examples of reframes that are that are there. So I'm I'm looking at one right now, which is uh, you do them beautifully in this in this notebook and these sketches. So one says, "What if they judge me?" That's the thought that somebody has that is creating you know the opportunity for you know potentially worry. And the left side it says, "So the fearful emotion is." you know, let's play it safe. So what if they judge me? Okay, don't play full out. Let's play it safe. And on the right-hand side, you have the potential or the possibility or the wonder, which is they they may, let's speak up anyways, which, mm-hmm. is, which is incredible. Give us some other ideas of, of that reframe on typical feelings and emotions that, well, typical emotions that might come up and, and what a reframe uh, could potentially look like. So what I hear all the time is, or what I've heard lately is, you know, they're not respecting me or they're not appreciating me. And when we're there, that's really when we're in a space of, of not taking responsibility and we're really being the victim because they are doing something to us. A reframe, getting curious, wondering, wondering about how we can actually take responsibility might be, wait, you know, they're not respecting me because I'm not setting clear boundaries. And so that's where we can say, okay, well, where do I stand? What is acceptable? What is okay and not okay to me? And how can I communicate that with compassion and love so that I am respecting myself and thus I am being respected by others? Mm, that's great. Um, I want to read one more because I think these are all, all awesome. And we're going to link these up in the, um, in the uh, show notes. So there's another one uh, that you have. 
it says they rejected me again. Mm. And, and on the left-hand side, the worry uh, thought is, is something wrong with me, right? Mm-hmm. So, so somebody has this feeling of I've been rejected. So there's a, there's a thought that comes out of it of worry, which is, is something wrong with me. And then there's the thought of wonder, right? And it says, no, re- rejection is redirection. Mm-hmm. Uh, explain that one a little bit more because I know that's a common one that people go through that they feel you know, rejected and their go-to is wondering if something is wrong with me. What do you mean by uh, rejection is redirection? So first off, you know, I've met so many artists, entrepreneurs, creatives, or all types of humans who, you know, there's that sense of rejection and they immediately think it's because they're unworthy or not enough. And that causes them to stop, to give up, to not pursue something. And that can be a relationship or a project or even a, you know, hard conversation. And it's so useful to remember that, no, actually rejection is redirecting us toward the people, the communities, the projects, the partners that are most aligned with who we are and what we're here to give. And so, you know, I think of Paulo Coelho who said, I think it was, he was rejected over 200 times before The Alchemist became a book. And I just think, you know, what if he would have given up on time five or 10 or 99 or 199? You know, the alchemist would not have touched millions of people and or in relationships and love like we put ourselves out there and people may not actually be be ready to receive who we are and we could give up and think something's wrong with us or we can continue to put ourselves out there knowing that it's just redirecting us on a path toward finding the person for us. I'm sure when you first got started, Amber, and you were practicing these things in your life, it probably was a lot like you know, working out is really difficult in the beginning or for people (laughs) who are new to eating healthy, it's very difficult in the beginning. Does it get easier over time? Have you found uh, the more you exercise that muscle? Absolutely. It's sort of like yoga for your brain, (laughs) for your brain and your soul. And really, you know, it's, it's building the muscle and being able, like even being able to pinpoint, oh, right now I feel rejected or right now I feel anger erupting inside of me. Being able to simply label that emotion is a practice and it takes time. But the more that we're able to really identify what we're feeling in every moment, understand the message beneath that emotion and be able to act accordingly, that is going to help us be more aware, more mindful, more productive human beings. Let's talk about the difference between feeling our feelings and becoming our emotions. Mm -hmm. Help us understand the difference between feeling the feelings versus identifying with our emotions. So, so much of my work is around how do we turn toward our emotions and understand why they're here, what message they have for us. And a big question that people ask me is like, well, what if I turn toward my sadness And I'm like, hey, sadness, you're here. What's going on? What is it that you want me to know? And then suddenly I'm sad for weeks on end and it's it's overcome me. And it's really important to understand that there's this actually this this old Greek religion that was called Helianism, and they believed that emotions came to visit you. And emotions, our job then was to meet the emotion, understand its message, and then let it go. And I think that's just a beautiful metaphor. Or maybe our emotions are like currents of water or storms, and they come in and they have something for us. We learn the lesson, take the insight, and we move forward with it. And so what's important there is being able to 
have that distance and have that objective awareness where it's like, oh, okay, this is anger and I am being visited by anger right now. Not I am anger but I am experiencing anger in this moment. And then being able to feel the feeling of, okay, I'm not gonna shut it down, I'm not gonna repress it, I'm not gonna deny it, because that can blow up in really negative ways, but I'm gonna allow and embrace the anger, let it be here, and then I'm gonna get clear on what is triggering the anger or what is causing it to be present in my life so that I can either set up, maybe the anger is showing up because you haven't been setting a boundary in your life, or maybe the anger is showing up because you've been giving so much to others and it's time to really show up for yourself. And so being able to understand that message and move forward with it is the power. And it's having that distance in that space is what allows us to not become the feeling. Because so many of us are used to kind of uh, swaying on that pendulum. Maybe we grew up in a family in a household that didn't allow us to truly feel our feelings and just kind of ignore them. So that's one side of the pendulum. Yeah. And then another side of the pendulum is like completely identifying with those emotions and thinking that you're them. And you're saying that there's a place in the middle, which is feeling the feelings you feel, but also at a little bit of an arm's length to understand that you are not the feeling. The feeling is yes. running through you. Exactly. You are not the feeling. The feeling is running through. Perfect distillation. <laughs> <laughs> that right there, I think is a big one because I think that in my experience, that can only happen when we take a pause like you said, in, in our world of stimulation, especially uh, a, a moment that can often cause, um, you know, we don't often know in advance the moments that are going to make us feel any particular way. They kind of just can pop up or an experience can pop up or something can pop up and create that uh, and we can have that response inside. Um, but when we give a little bit of a space, that's when we can take a step back and say, okay, this feeling is running through me. What is it bringing up? You know, I have, um, uh, you, you were mentioning in Q, one of our, our mutual friends and this incredible poet, that quote that he has is so amazing. You'll always find the evidence for what you choose to believe. It's almost like there's, there's some thought patterns that are running through our mind. We decide we want to feel some way and then often we'll go out and look for that feeling. I know a lot of people who turn to social media when they're bored, which is a yep. very dangerous thing because whatever their state of mind was before that sense of bored, boredom, like there's not enough happening in my life or I feel alone, I can't find the right partner or this or that, they're going to go on social media and they're going to find that feeling. Totally. And then they fall into the comparison trap and not worthy or enough and it spirals and spirals and spirals. So somebody finds himself. I think let's just talk about it in the context of social media because I think that's a real thing and we're get, hearing a lot about that from our, our listeners. So let's say you find yourself in that moment, you know, continuously scrolling and you start to feel these unpleasant feelings uh, build up. Amber Ray would say to do what? First, put the phone down. <laughs> Noticing that I'm falling into comparison and it's completely stealing my joy. So I am going to pause, notice this sensation is not serving me and turn the phone down or turn it off. And that's when I would really have a time out with myself and understand what was it that even had me pick up my phone in the first place. Actually, I talk about the three C's, which are a process for turning toward emotions. And the first is courage, which is 
you know, oftentimes feelings feel scary. It's like, it's scarier to look at the emotion than to keep scrolling through Instagram. So putting down the phone is the first step and being willing to have the courage to do that is really, really important. And then the second step is getting curious. Okay, why did I pick up my phone? What was going on? What's not feeling in alignment? Oh, because I was really bored and feeling lonely. And I'm now, you know, those emotions are what are having me look for connection in this digital space. How might I feel a sense of connection? How might I stimulate myself besides through social media? Oh, well, maybe I'll call up my really good friend or maybe I'll grab tea with someone I haven't seen in a while or more. Maybe I'll call my best friend right now and tell her that I'm feeling bored and alone. And so curiosity is what enables us to really identify the pattern that we were falling into and begin to chart a new path. And then, and then continue. The third C is compassion, which is, you know, it's so easy to beat ourselves up to think, you know, here I am lonely and bored again on my couch, swiping through social media, thinking something's wrong with me. Like, why haven't I figured it out yet? And that's where compassion is so key and remembering I'm human. I'm doing the best that I can. And you know what? I'm going to try to do a little better. I love it. In fact, you have a great example of uh, another one of those um, drawings, the sketches that you have. (laughs) And it's a, it's a common one, and especially if somebody's a creative, an entrepreneur, or starting anything new in any capacity of their life, it's the thought that I've messed up. So mm-hmm. I've messed up. The shameful response that we have is I'm a failure, mm-hmm. identifying with that. And then the compassionate response is I'm learning. I'm only mm-hmm. a human being. I'm learning, and I'm going down the journey. Yep. I love that one. It's super beautiful. Again, click Thank on the you. show notes to see these sketches. They, when they're visual, uh, Amber, um, it's almost easier to understand and not (laughs) identify, you know, with these thoughts that are floating around in our head that we think is part of us. But when it's visual, it's just like, makes sense. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. and to build on shame a little bit, I, I love, um, I've done a lot of research and also looked into what Brene Brown does. And, you know, shame is the difference between I'm a failure is what shame says. But, you know, compassion might say I failed at that thing and I'm learning and growing. And that's that's the important part there, because shame is I am the thing. I'm a failure. I'm not worthy instead of like, Oh, I messed up and I felt a little unworthy, but now, you know, I'm going to move through that. And it's again, becoming the emotion and remembering that we are not the feeling and understanding that that's really where the origin is, is personalizing our experiences and making ourselves wrong. Beautiful. Uh, let's talk about strategies for navigating anxiety and stress. Um, Mm -hmm. other things, you know, we've uh, talked a little bit about name it, uh, to tame it, Let's talk about some of the other strategies that are there that even before an incident happens and in the moment when the feelings come up, there, there are things that we can do to ground ourselves before people often feel they get hit with this wave of anxiety, mm. this wave of stress. So let's talk about what some of those strategies um, could look like. This is where I feel like the morning ritual is so key because this is where you decide what inputs are going to begin your day. And in that morning ritual, this is around centering, anchoring, connecting with yourself before the world has a chance to come in and, you know, step into your orbit. It's, It's the chance to really be on the yoga mat with yourself before you enter the world. And 
for me, my, you know, my go-to morning practices are journaling. And this is a place to re- release anything that's in my space, any feelings that have been coming up, and also to really intend for how do I want to feel today? What is it that I want to step in today? And really to set that intention. And also something that's been game-changing for me is that I no longer sleep with my phone in the bedroom and it's plugged in the other room. And until I've completed my ritual of journaling, drinking a large glass of water and uh, meditation, I don't touch my phone. And that makes a world of a difference because if I'm, you know, waking up, grabbing my phone, scrolling through email, jumping on social to see how my things are doing or, you know, allowing those inputs to really impact my day, I automatically come from an off-centered place. But if I really, you know, take 15, 20, you know, max 30 minutes to do those morning rituals that really anchor and center me, it makes a world of a difference. So I think that's, that is how we prevent and really prepare ourselves to be able to be our most mindful beings. And it can be a beautiful thing when we have a bunch of time. And when we don't have a bunch of time, it can be something small that we can do. I know there's people that are listening out there saying sometimes I barely have time to make breakfast or other things that are there, but you can fit a morning ritual in the amount of time that you have. I'm sure there's days where you don't have plenty of time, but what are sort of the, you know, the things that even if you don't have a lot of time in the morning that you still do for yourself that make the most, that make the biggest difference for you? Yeah, or let's say you have two minutes. You can wake up, put your feet on the ground and say, okay, I'm, I'm grounding, I'm connecting to the earth, I'm connecting to myself, and today my intention is. And today I want to feel like this. And that simply in two minutes, again, will really center you. Yeah, it's sort of setting a little barrier between yourself and the world so that the stimulus and energy and the momentum, I mean, the world especially in the way that we live it today, we have to fight. Well, fighting is one way to say it, but we have to create a little bit more intention to not get swept up in the momentum of technology, other people's priorities, you know, even sometimes just, you know, the noises and the stimulation if you live in the city and the other things. So grounding yourself creates a little bit of a barrier between you and that external world so you can, again, experience it, but not identify as that thing. I know when I don't practice my morning rituals, I feel like um, I am not in control of my Mm. day and I'm not in control of my experience. I'm experiencing things in a way that I didn't want to experience them. Yep. Me too. Totally. Yeah. Um, Sometimes people find themselves in the middle of the day and they, Mm. for just whatever reason, are feeling uncomfortable. The, you know, they may, and a lot of times they don't even know why there's an uncomfortable emotion or sensation. Let's just call it, you know, heavy, right? There's some heaviness that's there. And I've been in that place where I'm not even sure exactly what caused that feeling, but I feel that way. You know, if, mm-hmm. if Amber found herself in that situation, you know, and she has a little moment of insight and realized, okay, I'm not feeling so great. You know, what would she do in that case? Yeah, I would take five and go on a walk, get outside so I can get out of, you know, get out of my head and move into my body and allow thoughts to move. I'd grab a journal and I would jot down, I'm feeling heavy because, and just allow a little bit of stream of consciousness writing to come up. I'm feeling heavy because of this and, um, 
see see what emerges there. And I actually had this experience recently where I, I was feeling heavy and it was because I had committed to something that didn't feel aligned or true for me. And that heaviness kept coming for a few days until I addressed and went back and said, you know what? I know I said yes to this, but I'm really sorry. This isn't aligned with where I'm at right now. And But here are some other people who I think would be a great fit. And so it's interesting, you know, the emotions come because they want to be seen and heard by us. And so if we can take, you know, sometimes it can take five minutes, but that can make a world of a difference. I often hear people, well, I don't have time to take five minutes. It's like, well, do you realize that the emotion is weighing you down for three days? What is that worth? And so, you know, in that five minutes, you might be able to unlock the inside or understand what's, what's happening, what's causing you to feel off base so that you can shift and move in the direction of what feels right for you. It's almost like you're teaching people they need to become a little bit of a detective to get to the root of it. And taking five minutes to do that is going to save them hours, maybe even days or weeks or years of uh, emotional turmoil. Totally. And that's, that's really what I think of as wonder. Wonder is like our inner guide and inner detective being, you know, looking at the worries, looking at the fears, looking at the emotions and wondering, hmm, what's going on there? How can I, you know, what's the message here? What can I do with this? Incredible. Amber, I would love your thoughts on uh, just, you know, big picture as people are doing uh, the work that you bring up for them, sometimes much, much, much deeper. You know, it's like when you start pulling the thread, more starts to unravel and much bigger feelings come up that sometimes we don't often have the tools to address just by ourselves. Uh, in your book tour, in your experiences, in your personal life, the friends you've talked to, um, if somebody has some you know, some, whether it be trauma or some deeper, heavier things they feel like they need support in, are there methods or modalities that you've come across that you found to be useful and, um, and can work in conjunction with the practices inside of your book? Yes. I, I want to start by saying that I'm not a psychotherapist or a scientist, neuroscientist and, or counselor. And with deep trauma, you know, I always want to consider that there may be someone you want to reach out to, to really navigate that in that way. Um, that said, the technique I found to really move through this actually comes from the world of psychotherapy. And it's, a lot of my work is actually building characters around our emotions or building characters around our memories that really created trauma for us. So like, for example, I have an inner child character around the death of my father that I would notice show up in my adult life. And as a result of that, I would be in relationships with men and as my adult self acting out the behaviors of my inner child's unmet needs who dealt with the trauma of losing a father. And it wasn't until I was able to really build the character and even like, like she has a name and I know what she looks like. And, you know, when she comes up, I can actually, because I've, I've built this character around her, I can actually sit her down and be like, imagine myself sitting her down and be like, Hey, you know, I, what's going on? I see you. I see you. And I want you to know that it's okay. And I love you. And, you know, being able to have these dialogues can be so powerful because typically trauma is, you know, it's some part of us that wants to be seen and heard and, and really loved and cared for with compassion. 
And so, you know, I have characters from any, everything from, you know, and I have a couple inner children, one of my inner children to my perfectionist is this 30 something British woman who always jumps into my writing process and her and I have to have negotiations and building characters, um, really enables us to, again, distance and create space from the emotion so that we are not the feeling we know it's running through, but we can actually dialogue, negotiate and have this like nonviolent communication with the character that represents the emotion to be able to move through it more productively. In, in the broken brain docuseries, we talk a lot about how our community has an influence, um, on our thoughts in our lives, you're more likely to be uh, obese or struggling with health issues if your best friend is also struggling with health issues. I would imagine that for a lot of people, uh, the same would ring true for um, worry. Mm. It's like spending time with worried and anxious people in our lives would not be the most supportive thing to us. But then, of course, we all have relationships. Maybe it's the person's partner. Maybe it's your mother. Maybe it's your friend. How do you think about and what tools or strategy do you give to people who feel like their community and the people that they spend time with is not encouraging of this switch from worry to wonder? Yeah, I would say that have compassion for them because, and I think back to a time where I wanted everyone to change like me and I wanted everyone to get it and they just, my desire to have them get it and change with me or transform just created so much unnecessary pain. And so remembering to focus on the only thing I can control, which is myself was so, so key and to have love and compassion for everyone else. And knowing that the, you know, you can change yourself. And when you shift, that is often through your embodiment of change that actually gives people a model for what's possible. And so I know, you know, when I decided to quit my job, sell my stuff and take this crazy leap many, many years ago, certain people close to me thought it was nuts, decided to no longer trust me, didn't want to like decided to create distance from me, which was really painful at first. Cause here I was, I felt like I was making the right choices for me and they didn't get it. And now full circle, they they're starting to get it. And not that the aim is to get them to get it. The aim is to do what is truly true for me and to have compassion for people who just don't see it that way. And to make sure that I'm continually honoring and acting in alignment with those values, even if those values look different for someone else. And is part of it also too surrounding yourself with more like-minded people. Yes, totally. And yes. and like I'm always curious because I'm so passionate about friendship and connection and community. And a lot of people who are listening, they struggle sometimes to find those people in your own life. What have you seen? How do you find and connect with people that encourage that, that bring out that inner artist in you, that bring out that sense of wonder? You might be, you know, a mom who whose kids have moved on to college and you're in your mid fifties and you're listening to this podcast, you always want to start that health business. Yeah. But you, nobody around you is, uh, is doing those things and might discourage you. Or you might be that guy that's listening that is super passionate about, uh, brain health and wants to make changes, but all of your bros and buddies are just not into that lifestyle. How do you begin to go out and seek the community that you want in your life? Yeah. So I think there's two parts to this. The first part is, you know, to find a meetup group, see if there's anyone in your community that is already doing these things. And so I remember 
searching meetup.com to find people who are interested in art and creativity and going to different workshops or classes. So workshop classes, meetup groups, go to the places where you, you feel like these people might be, could be an art museum. And then a big part of it, start to maybe use your voice on social media. The internet, I found so many great friends. I met my fiance through the internet (laughs) because I was putting out content and engaging in spaces online where these conversations were happening. Because I I hear from people, well, I don't know where I can find that offline. And so if you can't do that, there are millions of groups online where people are connecting to talk about these different subject matters that are interesting to you. And then third, you know, if you're, I'd say, take the lead, you know, start a meetup group to, you know, create a dinner party and invite people that you don't know. You never know who can show up if you take the initiative because there's other people out there, I'm sure, who want the thing that you want to. Love it. Let's talk about when somebody says they don't have enough time Mm. and how can we reduce stress around our schedule and how can this person and us and our lives live intentionally and enjoy the moment and kind of break out of that. So anytime I hear someone say, including myself, I don't have enough time. What I'm actually hearing is I don't know what's actually important. And so the first thing is to get clear on what those priorities are, because I don't have enough time is when we're becoming a victim to time rather than a master of our schedule. And when we can identify, these are my priorities. These are my values, family, community, health, career and creativity, whatever those are for you, then we can build our schedule around those. And so just catch yourself. I, I, one day or one week, actually, I decided to check every time I said I didn't have enough time. And it was mind blowing to me how often I was buying into that or saying, even someone's asking me to get involved in something. And I would say, Oh, I don't have enough time versus my plate is full right now. And so it's so easy to buy into that not enough time story. So, you know, keep a log mark it down and then ask yourself, do I really have enough time or is this just not that important? And then get clear on what the values, what the priorities are, and then build your schedule around it. And then my favorite recent hack around this is every day I write out my, I have, I use Google Cal for my calendar. Then every day I write out my schedule so that I have a pen and paper version of it. And then after every activity that I do, I note either D E or N D is draining. E is energizing and N is neutral. And so after this interview, I will write a big giant E because I I love you in these interviews and I write Y. And that has really helped me understand where I'm spending time in ways that are things that I don't necessarily need to be doing or the types of things that are really expansive and overjoying and how I can build more of that into my life. I want to talk about anxiety, which is something that a lot of people deal with in this day and age. Um, anxiety and racing thoughts. Uh, you know, we often use words that really demonize anxiety. And you talk a lot about making emotions our our friends. Mm-hmm. And it kind of reminds me of this idea that uh, this quote, I don't know who it's attributed to, but what we resist will persist. What we accept we go beyond. Mm -hmm. So how can we make anxiety our friend and not our foe? Yeah. I think of anxiety as a very loyal, but often loud friend that will wake us up in the middle of the night to say, something's not right here. Something's off. Something's out of alignment. And Hey, I'm going to be really loud to let you know, to tell you to pay attention. And so 
for me and for the people I've worked with, the process is always getting to the root of what is causing the anxiety. Because until we know the, the pain point, the trigger, the moment of anxiety, we can't really solve for it. And so, you know, maybe anxiety is because you're committing to a lot of things that feel like shoulds or obligations and you're not spending time on yourself and what matters. Or maybe the anxiety is, is that you've spent 10 extra years in a career that you have no interest in anymore. Maybe the anxiety is you're filling your body with so much, you know, food and information that isn't serving you that your body is now having an anxious response. It's really noticing the anxiety and rather than reacting to it, turning toward it. And again, asking it, Hey, anxiety, why are you here? And, and people often are like, that's a little weird, Amber. I'm going to talk to my anxiety. But every time people sit down, pull out the pen and the paper and they talk to their anxiety, they think, Whoa, I feel like I just had years of therapy. And so it's so profound when we can, again, have the dialogue because it's different for every single person. I can't say here is what's causing your anxiety. You are your best guide. So learn to understand these emotions as clues, as informants, again, as allies who are telling you something is out of alignment in your life and I'm here to help you pay attention. And then it's your role to really find out what that thing is that's out of alignment. Uh, And I think this goes back to something that we started off the conversation with, which is that it's very normal and we live in a day and age where it's just so easy to suppress, resist, cover up all these feelings we have because that's what everybody else is doing until we get present to the impact that it's having Mm -hmm. in our lives and the fact that we literally may not live out the dreams we have because we're letting little fears Mm -hmm. take over uh, the dialogue on a day-to-day basis. Um, We've had... uh, Mutual friend on the podcast, Emily Fletcher, she talks a lot about meditation. I know everybody has a different relationship with meditation. Sometimes people, their journaling is their meditation. How is that for you? And does the practice of meditation have any formal or informal place in your life? Meditation has become huge for me lately. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's the tool I forgot to mention. I downloaded this app called Insight Timer, and it has been game changing for me because It has a lot of guided meditations. So you can choose five minute, 10 minute, 30 minutes, 60 minutes. And there are thousands and thousands of meditations that you can tap into if you want to, like they have some to reduce stress and anxiety, some to support you in getting into deep sleep, some to bring forth compassion and love. Basically, however you want to feel, you can find a meditation around that. And so that's become a daily practice for me now where, you know, there's so much going on. I'm switching time zones. The deep sleep one has been so helpful as well as the wake up meditation. So I'm trying to do it twice a day. And it's been just so powerful in connecting me to myself before I connect to all the inputs of the day, which can cause stress and anxiety. Um, talk a little about the experience of putting this book together and all the worry and the wonder in the journey, because it, it almost seems like from the outside, somebody could think, oh, you know, well, we only want to be in wonder. And I think that when I hear your message, it's like, well, yes, we don't want unnecessary worry in our life. But when worry does come up, also, it's, it's kind of a beautiful thing, because let's say if you didn't have the book, maybe you'd be more at peace in your life, but you wouldn't be living out your dreams. Mm-hmm. It's you take on challenging projects and other things to test you and have growth and take you to the next level. So I'm very interested in how that book, uh, the process of putting a book together was for you. 
Yeah, the book has been the greatest initiation of my life. It was always the biggest dream for me. And with that, it was the thing that had the most worry, fear, and doubt. That's where a lot of the, you know, who are you to write a book? You don't have, you're not a licensed therapist. You know, you didn't study neuroscience. How can you talk about these concepts? There was a lot of the imposter syndrome, the fear, the anxiety, the doubt, all the things I talk about in the book were really elicited through this book. And so that's how I knew that that was the thing for me, because I like to think that our mess is our message. And the thing that does create a lot of that worry, fear, anxiety is saying, Hey, this is important. Pursue me because this is precisely how you're going to expand and grow into the evolution of your being and the evolution of your soul. And so the book journey was facing all of those uncomfortable feelings, facing the worry, facing the fear, and really learning to move through it and transcend it and to use it as fuel. Because so Julia Cameron in her book, again, The Artist's Way, she says, eavesdrop, don't invent. And this is, she's referring to creativity, but I think it's useful in anything, which rather than trying to invent the perfect sentence or invent some big idea, just eavesdrop. Notice the thoughts you're having. Notice the feelings that you're having. Notice the people that you're encountering. Just begin to practice noticing, which not only takes you to the present moment, but that's incredible material for what you do next. And so when I was writing the book, I was just noticing my emotions and I'm like, oh, the perfectionist is saying this. Oh, my worry voice is saying this. Oh, I feel shame about this thing from the past. And a lot of that became the material for the book. I just want you to say that one more time. Uh, And and our mess mess is is our our message. message. Yeah. Yeah. What a powerful statement. It's like the things that we think make us incomplete is the reason why we're here and other people need to hear that message. Yeah. I talk about in the book also this idea of the Japanese art of, I think I'm going to say this wrong, kintsugi, which is basically the process of taking shattered pottery and piecing it back together with gold lacquer. And the process doesn't hide the cracks or the imperfections. It actually celebrates those as creating a unique piece of art that wouldn't have existed before. And so I think of that as our lives, those cracks, those imperfections, those messes are our message and the thing that we're here to give to the world. I love it. Uh, tell us a bit more about your book and where people can find it and, uh, and some of the cool things that, uh, that you have a ton of writing online too for individuals. We'd just love to have a little plug for everything that you're up to right now. Yeah. So the book is choose wonder over worry. It's about all the things we just talked about and it's available anywhere books are sold. Choosewonder.com is the home for the book where you'll find different resources and all the links and a sample chapter. And, my personal website and I'm basically Hey Amber Ray, A-M-B-E-R-R-A-E on Instagram, where I share a ton of content and Twitter and all the places. And then amberray.com is the personal blog where there's lots of articles. If you want to dive deeper into these specific emotions, because I really bring those to life on the blog. If you could, uh, give your, eight-year-old to 12-year-old, 14-year-old self, um, a piece of advice in where you are right now. Um, Of course, all the experiences that you went through, like we all feel, are great and beautiful, and we're all part of what made you who you were. Um, What piece of advice would you you write down and, uh, and, and give to them? I mean, well, I did write down, please don't die with your gifts still inside when I was 12. But no, I feel like the thing that one of the bigger edges for me has been to trust the mess 
So trust the moments of uncertainty to trust the moments of struggle, the hard times, the difficulty. And I often wanted to jump to, so, you know, solution as quickly as possible. But some of those messy middle moments were where some of my most profound growth came from. And so just trusting that as part of the process and knowing that it's bringing me to exactly the point that I'm meant to be. Which is such a hard thing to do, but every time we do it and we look back, we're like, oh yeah, it all worked out. (laughs) Oh, that's why that happened. Oh, I needed that. Yeah, totally. Amber, thank you so much for joining us on the Broken Brain Podcast and talking about worry and wonder and really becoming more present to how we feel and how we feel in our bodies so that we can catch these patterns and turn them into something useful. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.